Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for every day following you. And just guide our conversation tonight, Lord, as we, we both talk about the multitude of English translations, and then we step into the interpretation stage, Father. And, um, so just guide us for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. If you guys will go to the back afterwards, or whenever you want, if you get bored, if you need to do something to stay awake. There's a bunch of Bibles over there that Christina and I brought, and different books about the Bible that you may want to just check out that are kind of of a curiosity. Some of the translations I have over there. Um, It's a Civil War Bible, a little pocket Bible. Christina brought Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Um, So afterwards, go check them out. We're going to jump in now. Last week we ended with the King James. And then, so today what I want to do is what happened after the King James. And we're going to jump from 1611 to 1880s. Because that's really when the next Bible translation came out. So the King James was reigned supreme for those hundreds of years. Except except for the pilgrims and the Puritans. What Bible did they use? Hmm? The Geneva Bible, yes. Which... um, and what percentage was all these Bibles, and ultimately the King James Bible, what percentage were they actually Tyndale's Bible? 90% of Tyndale's translation ended up in these other translations. And thus the irony of killing the man who trained the English Bible, but yet using his Bible and approving it. So, um, so we're going to just run through some things about the modern area. And we'll get up to the 70s, and then it goes like this. It goes like this. Two or three or four through the early 20th century. And then just, just unbelievable. We'll talk about world translations, not the new world translation, which is Jehovah's Witness, which is over there on the table. But we'll talk about um, Bible translators throughout the world. Then we're going to look at how to interpret the Bible. Real quick. We're going to cram it down your throat. You guys ready? Okay, so... Who has the notes? Thank you, Randy. So come 1881, we now have the first English translation after the King James. It was called the English Revised Version. And it's, if you guys remember, we had what was called the Textus Receptus. The Textus Receptus was the Greek text that Erasmus started and went through multiple editions that ultimately was the Greek text used to translate the King James. It had approximately 12 Greek manuscripts that were used, collated together, the practice of textual criticism that made this Greek text that were, was used for translations. But then in the 18, late 1800s, hundreds and hundreds of, translation, of um, manuscripts were found. And so now, two gentlemen called Westcott and Hort, British scholars, create a new text that replaces the, text, the Textus Receptus, or rather, that comes alongside the Textus Receptus. It was not easily received by much of Christendom because all of a sudden now the King James, based on the Textus Receptus, is the Word of God. And you're telling us there's other options? So, so it created a dilemma for people that you're saying it, these are better than the King James and better than the Greek text behind the King James? And the answer was, yes, it was. But that caused struggles for people. Nonetheless, the English Revised Version came out in 1881 based upon Westcott and Hort's edition of of the Greek text. 
And by the way, I want you to think of that that Greek text is, is edition one, all right? It's gone through now 28 editions. And so now there's the 28th edition now of that Greek text that our modern translations are based on because more and more manuscripts are found. So in 140 years, thousands of manuscripts have been found, so they keep updating the edition. If, if Westcott and Hortz was number one, now it's called the Nestle Allen, 28th edition is the 28th grandchild of Westcott and Hortz. Does that make sense? And every five, six years, a new one comes out because of, of manuscripts being found and or textual criticism becoming more accurate. Nonetheless, this is a British edition, and we Americans speak a different English than the Brits. So in 1901, the American Standard Version. Only one or two of you read the New American Standard, right? Okay, yeah, and I read it for most of my Christian life. That this is the first one, this is the American Standard. The New American's revision of this. So 1901, they came out with the American Standard. And the thing about the American Standard was they, they, they Americanized the vocabulary because it was different than British. And they put the name Jehovah in there because they restore the name. Because you guys know the word Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, refers to God's name. But today, I was actually going to show you um, a, um, let me see if I can pull it up here. Can you guys read that? I'll make it bigger. Bigger. Very few translations today translate the tetragrammaton, which is the four letters, you know, yod Hey vav Hey Yahweh. Very few translations translate the name. They put Lord in there, L-O-R-D, which goes all the way back to before Christ. We don't say God's name, we say Lord. We don't say in Hebrew, Yahweh, we say Adonai. Comes into the New Testament translations of, in English. I, I don't like it, but so you see up here, this is Exodus 3.13, where God says what his name is to Moses. Moses says, okay, I'll, I'll, go, with, I'll go for you to Egypt and deliver your people. And they're going to ask me, what's your God's name? And Yahweh says what? I am. I am that I am. And we see that here in 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. So here he's using the first person singular of the verb, I am. It's a very simple verb. But then in the next verse, he, he says, and Moses, and God said to Moses, God said, this is an American standard on the left. Moreover unto Moses, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Jehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. So they put the word Jehovah in there because when God talks about himself, he says, I am. First person singular verb. When we talk about God, we say he is which is the third person singular, which is the name Jehovah, or the more modern translation, Yahweh. Does that make sense? And so the name Yahweh, he is, occurs, and this is the, on the right, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. God also said to Moses, say this to Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sent me to you. These are the only two modern translations that I know of that put God's name in there, except for 
the New World Translation, which is a translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. But that's not one I recommend to you. Because they put his name in there too. Yes, ma'am. Yes, they are. It's just two different ways to pronounce it. She was asking if Yahweh and Jehovah are both the third person singular for God's name in Hebrew, which is, which is it's called the Tetragrammaton, four letters. English Y-H-V-H, Y-H-W-H, whether you use V or W. And we don't really know how it's pronounced because we explained this back in the text portion of the class. The, the vowels got, were never written down during the pronunciation of this time. It's not until the 5th, 6th, 7th century AD that they put vowels in. And when they put the vowels in, they put Adonai's vowels in. So when you were reading it, you didn't say God's name, you said Adonai. And thus the word Jehovah is the four Hebrew letters for God's name with the vowels for Adonai. Does that make sense? I explained this before. Correct, and Jehovah is the English, the English pronunciation of the name with the, the vowels for Adonai. More modern scholars say it was probably pronounced Yahweh. Y and J are, are come similar. It's, it's all, you know, I'm, I'm confusing myself now. Let's move on. So I, I really like, I wish we'd do this more, use God's name. He says it's his memorial name forever, and we don't say it. So does anyone ever pray to God and say, Yahweh? Why don't we? Someone told me, and, and I, if you have a Jewish background, I mean no insult to you. Someone told me we shouldn't say God's name because it's offensive to Jewish people. And my argument is, if God said this is my memorial name to all generations, he wants us to know his name, call him by his name, to me, it's offensive to God to not use his name. So I'm not trying to offend a Jewish person, but I don't want to offend my God either. I think we should say his name personally. So that's, that's my two cents. It's actually worth about two bucks. Will, then I'll come to remark. Certainly, their motive is good. Their motive goes all the way back to before Christ. of Because the third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. The idea of using God's name inappropriately. Well, if we never say his name, we can't use it in vain. So their motive is to not dishonor God. But can you not say God's name and still dishonor him? Obviously. So I, I, don't, I don't think we should carry that practice into the church. Mark? So, you know, some of the manuscripts actually put the Hebrew letters in or transliterations of the Hebrew. Yes. I don't know about those two codexes. If Codex Vaticanus or Sinaiticus put God's name in or not, I don't know. We can, we can, I can check that out. But some of the early Greek manuscripts did. But in translations, they, they quit doing it, into Latin and into to English. So I don't understand why. But, but some, some manuscripts have it. 
All right, so the American Standard. So now, come down to number C, English translations from 1901 to 1970. If, if, we, take, if we take the King James and the, the English Revised Version as two, two recensions of the Bible, from there we get some more additions. The King James actually came out with King James II back in the early 70s. And guess how well that, has anyone ever heard that? King James II. It, it bombed. Because people who love the King James, why do we need to do this again? But then after that came the new King James, which took out Elizabethan English. That became very popular. But it was still based upon the Texas Receptus. So that's pretty much what we have from the King James. We have the King James II and the new King James. But from the, ER, the ERV, the English Revised, then we get the American Standard in 1901 we just discussed. We get the Revised Standard Version in 1952, 46 and 52, the RSV, which Protestant Christianity, or rather Evangelical Christianity, didn't really adopt. It's a good translation. But Evangelical Christianity didn't adopt because it was, it was translated by, I think, the World Council of Churches which tended to be more the liberal branch of Christianity. So we didn't want to use the Bible of the liberals. Even though it's a very good translation. It's such a good translation that when they made the new Revised Standard Version, they sold the rights to their RSV, the Revised Standard Version, the Crossway, and they turned it into the ESV. So functionally, the Bible we use in this church comes from the Revised Standard Version that we wouldn't use because it was translated by liberals. So you kind of see how weird all of us are in this stuff? Um, that's not all on your notes. Um, so because we, we needed another modern translation in English, we didn't want to use the RSV because it's translated by liberals, then the Lachman Foundation came out with the New American Standard Bible. And the uniqueness of the Lachman Foundation is that they are not a publishing company that makes money. The Lachman Foundation is a nonprofit corporation, and they have, they're, very, they're very adamant about preserving the Word of God in English. And they made a big mistake, though. They would not release rights to use it to publishing companies in order to make commentaries and accordances and, and all these other things. So this takes us to the next section, the international, the new international version. At the same time, we have multiple Bible scholars working on the NIV. And do you remember the translation methodology from formal equivalence to, to dynamic equivalence? Remember that? Well, the New American Standard was formal equivalence. The Revised Standard Version tend to be more formal equivalence. The King James is more formal equivalence. So did you guys get notes? They're somewhere over here. Sorry. So the translators of the NIV wanted a more dynamic equivalent translation. Now, dynamic equivalent translation has been going on all through the 20th century up to this point. I have about four of them back there done by individuals. The Weymouth, the um, um, J.B. Phillips. They're all great translations done by one person. So scholars wanted a committee that would do a dynamic equivalent translation. So they started working on the NIV back in the late 50s. 
Once the NIV came out, one second, once the NIV came out and published, and I say here, it's, um, it came out in, um, in okay, New Testament 73 and the whole Bible in 78, then ultimately Zondervan bought it. And Zondervan released it to anyone who wanted to use it for using it as a basis for a commentary or any other Bible study book. You can use our NIV for a fee. So what you have now is most of Christendom either using the King James because that's God's word or New American Standard or NIV. Those are the three primary things you would find in your evangelical churches. But because publishing company or Zondervan gave rights to anyone who wanted to use the NIV um, but paid Zondervan a fee, so all of a sudden now all the study helps are coming out with the NIV. And the New American Standard got left behind. It took them about 25, 30 years before the Lockman started releasing the rights to use the New American Standard, but it's too late. The New American Standard is, is with the outcome, with, with the advent of the ESV, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard is hardly used at all anymore. And, um, but they, did, they just came out with a new 2020 edition, which I haven't bought yet. I want to buy one because I might go back to it. We'll find out. Yeah, I might. I don't know. So, so the NIV, the NIV came out. It grew rapidly. It is now the best-selling English Bible out there. It has other, it has other additions to it. We talked about those. The NIRV, the New International Reader's Version. The, NI, the NIVT, I think it's called, which is more gender-neutral. And, and the NIV has come out with different editions from, from the 70s to 84 was an edition to 2011 was another edition. And, the, and each, as it keeps going, it's more gender neutral. But it's not gender neutral to a point where it's, it's crossing a line of, of, of a problem. It's just, it's just contrary to how some Christians want to read their Bible. We talked about that, that is, is the generic he falling out of usage in English? And to older Christians, it's like, no, don't mess with the Bible. Um, we talked about the fact that, you know, God made man in his image. Well, the word man there refers to humans. So the NIV and the New, Re New Revised Standard Version will say God made humanity or made human beings in his image. That's what it means. But sometimes, oh, they're getting liberal on us. So you always got to ask, is, is it liberal or is it language is changing? Because why are there so many translations? Because language is changing. When you look at some of those translations over there on the table done back in the early 1900s, language has changed. So go to the next page. I'm going fast to this because I really want to get to interpretation. The plethora of modern translations. Okay, I'm going to read this paragraph. Today, we have dozens and dozens of modern translations. Then add to that the fact that study Bibles have flooded the market in various translations. You, you can find study Bibles from every perspective. And you, you know what's the difference between a translation and a study Bible? So a study Bible is a publisher will take, a, a, take the NIV, for example, and will put study notes at the bottom of the page in relation to a certain group of people. So there's the, there's the Reformation study Bible. There's the Woman's study Bible. There's the Application Life Study Bible. There's the Green Study Bible for environmentalists. 
And it goes on and on and on. Why? In the end, in the end, let's let's call it what it is. Um, publishing makes money. So I'm sure there's other good motives in there. Um, first of all, you guys pay me, so making money is not bad. <laughs> I don't want to make say making money is bad motive, um, but. From 1952, when the Revised Standard Version was published, until 1990, when the New Revised Standard Version was released, there have been 27 complete translations of the Bible. So look at me. Think about that. From the King James to the English Standard, English Revised Version, 1611 to 1881, no new Bibles. From 1881 to the early 1900s, very few. But as you keep moving through the 20th century, and by the time you get to the, the, the middle of the 20th century, a 20-year period in there, 27 more complete translations of the Bible, up to 1990. Those facts come from, Dr. Bob, Christian History Magazine, How We Got Our Bible, which, by the way, I'm going to recommend you guys go online to Christian History Magazine website. You can download that edition, How We Got Our Bible, and it will kind of affirm so much that I've already said here if you want a review and, um, of it. But during that same time period, there were another 25 translations of the New Testament alone. In those 38 years, we have 52 complete or partial translations of the Bible. So it just, it just remember the little branch, and all of a sudden the tree just took off. Now, if you see the next paragraph, I say the above paragraph was written well over 10 years ago when I did these notes first for the Bible college class. I revised them. I decided this morning, though, to update this information. So I went to the ever-reliable wikipedia.com. Okay? And Tina's shaking her head because she knows that no reputable scholar will use that as a website. But I did because it is convenient. They gave a list of no less than 80 Bible, full Bible translations for the 20th century. 80 of them. But, but meaning what? So, so if you didn't hear him, he said, hasn't done much good, has it? And, and the point being, has the faith been propagated in, in America or English-speaking world more godly? And it's kind of going... So, so we shouldn't have done it? No. Just, just an observation, not a commentary. Yeah, okay. Um, when you say you can't do a translation Bible, which Bible are they translating? They're taking the Greek text, the Hebrew text, and translating it in English. Yes. Or they're taking a previous edition and revising it enough to where they can call it a new Bible. A good percentage of the Bibles we read are revisions of earlier Bibles. Which doesn't make them bad, it just means... It's just, you know, it was done, all the work of translating from one language to another, then we're going to revise it based upon new information. Well, it either goes back to the, well, the King James quit being used as revisions. So this all goes back to the English Revised Version of 1881, pretty much. And, and, and then the branches from there. But all, all these, like the ESV, which revised the RSV, they went back to the Greek and Hebrew in their revision. But they use the basis of the text. You can take the Revised Standard Version of 1956 and the ESV, which I'm not sure was translated 20 years ago or so, and put them together, and you'll see 70, 80% of it's same wording. 
They'll get rid of the, the these and thous. Um, but some of the things that I think were poor in it, they kept. And so here's why. Here's why. So, one of my favorite passages, Titus 2.14. Titus 2.14 that said, Christ came to redeem us from all lawless deeds and to create a people for his own possession who are, this is New American Standard, who are zealous for good deeds. And the word zealous is actually a transliteration of the Greek word, which is zelutos. So the word zelutos comes in English as zealous. And, and, and we also get the word zealot. And what's a zealot? Someone who's, at a, who's over the top crazy about things, you know? So, but, but Paul chose the word that people who follow Jesus, he saved them so they would be zealous for good deeds. Well, all the other translations, only one other translation uses the word zealous that I know of. They'll use eager, excited for, and they all fall short, in my opinion, of the word. So why don't they just say zealous? I think it's very passionate, because it's not a word we use much. But why don't they use the word zealous? Okay, a zealot certainly has a negative connotation, so that might be part of it. Might be. I, 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 I have a different perspective, so I'll have to think about that. My perspective is if they all use the word zealous, zealous, then why are they coming out with a new translation? See, if, it's already, if there's already a translation that says that, I don't need another one saying the same thing. So you ha if you have a new translation, obviously you want to say it differently. And when you have so many, sometimes they, they say it differently in a way that, well, that's, that's poor. At some, point you have to, at some point you have to say it so differently that it's not the best way to say it. Yes, it is. So if... if if you want modern English, see, so he just raised a new question. Do we translate the Bible in the vernacular of the people, or do we leave certain words alone and then teach people what they mean? I don't know if we talked about this when we looked at the word propitiation. Do we change it to a sacrifice of atonement, or do we leave it propitiation and then teach people what it means? And so Tina says, teach them what it means. And, and half of you would say, teach them what it means. The other half say, no. When, when if, if sacrifice atonement interprets it, do that. So that's the translator's problems. So do you, do you as a missionary, this tribe in, in whatever remote jungle has never seen a, a sheep or a lamb, but they raise pigs, do you change lamb of God to pig of God? Or do you teach them what a sheep is? I mean, that, that's the question. That's kind of extreme. So let's do one more, then we're going to interpretation. The worldwide status of Bible translations. I updated these today, too. I went to, you guys know who Wycliffe Bible Translators are? Wycliffe Bible Translators is a Bible translating organization. They do not plant churches. They simply train people to translate the Bible and send them to the places where there are no Bibles. And they translate the Bible, then they leave. It'll take them 10 years to translate the New Testament. And it's a very long process. They have to go there and learn the language first. Then they have to get language helpers to help them translate it. And it takes a long time. And, and there's many languages they've done just the New Testament. So then they believe the Word of God, if the people will read it, 
will establish a church. But they don't plant churches. It's a very interesting philosophy. Here's what they say, the bullet points there on page two. At least 7,000 languages are spoken or signed around the world. That's something they added, signed. I don't know how you do a Bible and sign language. Braille, I understand, but I don't know, so I don't know why they put that in. Second bullet point, at least 1.5 billion people do not have the full Bible in their language. That's more than the entire continent of Africa. More than 1,500 languages have access to the New Testament and some portion of Scripture in their languages. Almost 700 languages have the complete translated Bible. So out of 7,000 languages, only 7, 700 have the complete Bible. At least 2,000 languages still need a Bible translation started. Work is being done in more than 2,700 languages worldwide, and over 2,100 of these projects involve Wycliffe Global Alliance partners. So that's their little bragging right. So there's a lot of work to be done. So those of you who are younger and just starting off your education, you got to think about being Bible translators. They send you to Texas to the Summer Institute of Linguistics, and summer in Texas is brutal. But you learn about translation, then off you go. I think it's incredible. I'll support you. So at the bottom of the page, two great resources to explore more about the Bible come from Christian History Magazine downloads. These are free. How We Got Our Bible, I quoted that. It, it covers a lot of things we've already covered. And then the new edition just out today, when I went to their website, this pops up as their current edition. I go, oh, this is cool. It's called America's Book, How the Bible Helped Shape the Nation. So it's, it's a whole magazine on the role of the Bible in American history. And I, I scanned through it today. It's very fascinating. So that has less to do with how we got our Bible, but with how God used the Bible in American history. Then below that are two books on Bible translations. One is by Gordon Fee and Mark Strauss, who both were part of the NIV Translation Committee. And, and it's called How to Choose a Translation for All It's Worth. And they will argue for the dynamic equivalent translation. And since I, I in my classes tend to argue for a formal equivalence translation, I'll require the students to read this book so they get the other side. The other one is Leland Riken, who is a English professor at Wheaton University, Wheaton College, and he was the literary stylist for the ESV. His book, The Word of God in English, Criteria for Excellence in Bible Translation, argues for a formal equivalence translation. So if you want to pursue it more, um, those are two excellent, well-written books. So any questions, thoughts, opinions, disagreements? Change, you're going to change your Bible? Anyone here going to change the version they read? Okay, on Sunday morning. So if the New American Standard will give me a cut on everyone who buys a New American Standard, we'll see if I do it, because it's all about money, Frank. <laughs> I know, see this. <laughs> well, see, so I, I underline a lot with a pencil. And I've spent a lot of time in Romans. So this last Sunday, I had to erase stuff because it's pencil. Because I wanted to underline some of the things I was emphasizing when I was reading. And there was so much underline. Once you underline everything, there's no more emphasis. So I don't highlight, though. I don't highlight. Because it irritates me when I highlight and then turn the page and you see through it. That irritates me.
Yeah. Questions and anything? The last So I'd suggest to you this, that the originals to the copies to the translation, very little pollution has entered in. Pollution has entered in. We don't have the autographed copies that biblical writers wrote. We have other copies. But just as Paul told Timothy, his copy is the inspired word of God. I believe ours are too. Even though I would have opinions about the level of of accuracy, nothing, nothing that, that pollution doesn't affect our doctrine in any way. It, it just doesn't. It's funny how we spend a lot of time talking about it and books written on it, but in the end, you read the King James all the way through whatever the, the New Living Translation, and you're going to walk with Jesus. Um, but where does pollution enter in? Interpretation. That's where it enters in. In fact, I would suggest that you, you could probably change this little analogy here and just put a little hose right here with a valve on it. In some interpretation, just open that sucker up and pump mud in. Because we mess it up. So I'm going to give you some general principles of interpretation. And we all want to interact with you on this. It won't be as easy for the people at home watching this. But I'll try and repeat things. And I have, I have a lot of notes here. What time we got? Who's going to keep time for me? Any of you guys clock watchers? Okay, you keep time for me. You let me know when it's a quarter to eight. Okay, then I'll talk faster. So, a fourfold process of Bible study. Here's how we usually open the Bible. We, we do a couple things. First of all, we do devotionals. And we get one, and there's a verse at the top of the page and a paragraph. I'm not against devotionals, unless it's the only spiritual input you have from the Bible, then I'm against them. I'm against that practice. But we have a verse that has no context. And often what is written below it is simply how to apply it to your life. And it may or may not be a good interpretation of the verse. So if we want to do it right, it's a fourfold process. Observation, what does the text say? And this is the hard work. This is not fun work. You sit there and you read it over and over again and you ask questions of it. What, what does this mean? What does that mean? What, what's the history behind this? What's the culture? You ask questions of it. What does it say? Then... You ask, what does it mean? Then, what is the universal principle being taught? So here, here's, a, here's where I, I example this, because I'm not going to maybe have time later to do it. If I say to you, love your neighbor as yourself, is there anything in that command that is culturally bound? Is Culturally bound. In other words, let, let me compare it. Twice Paul and once Peter says, greet one another with a holy kiss, which nobody does in this church, and is commanded three times. So why don't you? Part COVID. Okay. Well, that's, that's been the excuse for the last year. What was the excuse before that? Okay, goodies. Um, which, which, which is really a cultural thing. We understand germs now. They didn't then. It's, you know, I am, um, Grace Church did tons of mission trips to Russia. I never went. 
and Dan Frank would go. And two things in the culture of, of Russia, even in the church, vodka shots and men kiss you on the lips as a greeting. Someone said, oh, yes. You know. Oh, for you, you're a woman. What about me, a man? <laughs> so, you know, and Dan Frank, who's a pastor of Grace Church, he didn't drink. And he certainly didn't like men kissing him. But over there, he had to do both. So, so, so. Greet one over the holy kiss is culturally bound. Love your neighbor as yourself is a universal principle. So when you're interpreting scripture, you got to ask, there's a command here. Is this culturally bound? If it is, then what is the point behind it that is applies to our world today? If it's not culturally bound, we bring it right in. Love, neighbor, and yourself are not culturally bound. Now, maybe how you do it reflects your culture. But the fact that you do it is not culturally bound. Greet one another with a holy kiss is culturally bound. So how do we apply that today? We certainly don't practice it. How do we apply it? What does it look like in 21st century Incline Village? Fist bump. That's the, that's the COVID holy kiss. Oh, an elbow. That's even you. That's even, you know, but that's cool people. So, um, so, so what, what's the principle behind it? Holy kiss. Godly affection. We should be affectionate with each other in a godly way. And how do we do that? Take COVID out of the way. How do we do that? A hug, a hug, you know, and a handshake at best. And, and stand up, stand up. So, so are you afraid of COVID? Probably not. But So here's how, here's how guys hug, you know. It's obligate three pats. Boom, 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 you know. Now that, that's our holy kiss. Yeah. Now, if it's, if it's Frank, I'm going all, all in bare, you know. But if it's a lady, I'm going to do a side hug. So, so it's, it's culturally conditioned but we can carry out the command still. Affectionately greet one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so that's the principle. What does it mean? And if you realize what this means is culturally bound, then you have to apply it principally. Then, then we ask what are the specific applications to our lives. So you create the principle, have a godly affection for one another, then the application is, is um, you know, hug, shake, whatever it is that is, is um, not offensive or ungodly. Make sense? Well, obviously, we have to look at culture for interpretation. Because at that point, we'll realize, oh, this is very culturally bound. And, and there's some, there's, but that one, see, I picked that one because it's not offensive. How about this one, ladies? Four times. Wives, submit to your husbands. Is that a universal principle or culturally bound? <laughs> he says with his wife at home. <laughs> So, so this is the difficulty of Bible interpretation. Bible interpretation to application. Um, so let's keep going. Recognize, B, that your presuppositions and pre-understanding affect your interpretation. So let me give you this one. Here's one of the New Testaments I have. It's called the Unvarnished New Testament. It's done by a Greek scholar who's an atheist. And he believes that he's approaching the Greek text with no bias. 
Well, you religious people that are Greek scholars, you approach the text with, pre text with presuppositions and biases, so obviously you do it wrong. I, I don't even believe this book, so I can do it with no bias. And what do you say to that? What do you say to the fact that he has no bias? Hogwash. Yeah, everyone has bias. Everyone has a worldview and pre-understanding. So a worldview is like the glasses you wear that you see the raw facts of the world through. And, and, and I use this illustration because I, I vividly remember, I, I think I told you here, I don't remember that I came to faith at, at like four in the morning on a Saturday morning. Woke up the next day, went down to Maranatha Christian Bookstore to buy a Bible. And I remember walking by the newspaper stand. I have no clue what the headlines said, but here's what I remember. That I remember reading those headlines with new glasses. And I was a follower of Jesus when I read those headlines. And it's just, like I said, I don't remember what the headlines said. I just remember an experience of, oh, I see the world differently now. I'm following Jesus. So we all have presuppositions and we all have pre-understanding. Pre-understanding is, so, so let me do presuppositions. So I, I want to read to you here Stanley, Stan Gundry, who, who actually works for Zondervan. This was a statement he made back in the 70s at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting. The Evangelical Theological Society is a, meet, a group of eggheads that get together once a year. And, and I go to these conferences. That I love them. But it's hundreds and hundreds of, of, of meetings where they read theological papers to each other. It's not that boring. It's really fun. What's egghead? A nerd. A, a ner yeah, egghead. A nerd, a, a geek. Oh, again, again, yes, it's a new word. You can come up with a meaning for it. Um, so here's what, here's what Stan Gundry says. I wonder if we all really recognize that all theology represents contextualization, even our own theology. We speak of Latin American theology, black theology, or feminist theology. But without the slightest second thought, we all assume that our own theology is simply theology, undoubtedly in its purest form. So do we recognize that the versions of evangelical theology held by most people in this room are in fact North American, white and male, and that they reflect and or address those values and concerns? Do you guys get that? And I'm sure that didn't go over well in the 70s either. Because um, even today when I look at theology, I go, this is just good theology. It's my theology. Of course it's good. But I have presuppositions that inform my process of thinking that comes to conclusions. So a presupposition is a starting point that is assumed to be true and then acted upon. All right? So give me some examples of basic presuppositions in life. Pink is for blue. Pink is for girls, blue is for boys. When it comes to babies, yes. And, and when, and, so I won't say that. Because I remember recently calling a little boy who had very long hair a girl. And the mother said, no, he's a boy. And I said, I'm so sorry. And I had no problem with long hair. It looked like a girl to me. So, so presupposition, boys have short hair, girls have long hair. Um, other ones, other presuppositions about life. Older 
older is wiser. Generally true. Hey. See, see, I don't have a comeback even. You got me. I don't even have a comeback. Okay, so, so, so men are supposed to ask women out for a date. These are cultural presuppositions. But there's, there's philosophical ones too, you know, that I have access to truth. That I believe truth can be known. And, and that I can analyze something and see if it's truth or false. But that presupposes there's absolute truth that can be discovered. Much of modern philosophy is, no, there's no such thing as absolute truth. It's all relative. It's relative to your culture, relative to all sorts of things. And so it's your truth, not my truth. So when someone says that's your truth, not my truth, they don't believe in absolute truth. So they have a different presupposition about truth. So, so we have certain presuppositions about nature. Why don't you guys just jump off a bridge? You can't prove, you can't see gravity, but you have this deep belief. If I jump off that bridge, I'm going down fast. So there's different things that you just operate all day long, the subconscious level presuppositions. We need to bring them to a, an active level. So can we ask what some of the presuppositions of 21st century American evangelical Christians are? One is truth exists. What's the presupposition we have about this? It's God-inspired. Okay. It's, it's infallible, inerrant. Those presuppositions are being challenged. What's some of the presuppositions we have as Christians? Okay. And, and if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, is that a presupposition? Or is that a conclusion from the presupposition, this is the word of God, and thus it teaches it? So a presupposition is something you can't prove. I can prove that if I, you assume my presupposition, this is the word of God. Okay, so Jesus is who he says he is. Oh, very much. But, but if Jesus is Jesus... Jesus is who he says he is, is being challenged, but what are they challenging? The truth. Of the Bible. So I'll just come back to my presupposition, God has revealed himself. This whole chart, I presuppose, starts from God has revealed himself. So, so we can, this is, can go long and deep. Where do presuppositions come from? How'd you get yours? Okay, the culture you live in, family, parents, your pastor. In fact, let's, let's go to pre-understanding real quick. Go to that one, because this is it's the same thing. First of all, can you change your presuppositions? Yes, you can. And see, that's what modern philosophy says, that you are in a prison, and, and you cannot out, come outside of that prison. And it's kind of silly, because people convert from one belief system to another. It's kind of empirically proven you can change your presuppositions. But what is pre-understanding? So tell me your theological backgrounds in this room. The, if you grew up in Christianity, what theological bent did you grow up under? Conservative Baptist? Catholic? Episcopal? Were you Lutheran? No, oh, okay, I don't know why I thought that. Methodist? Does that have any influence on your beliefs? Yes. Not anymore. Not anymore. So, so what do you mean? Well, I just mean, I don't know, 
All right, so you, you changed. So, but but they, they influenced you to where you had to make a decision to move away from them. Okay, you say yes. Okay, see, you're, you're smart. Yes. Who has been some of your primary influences in understanding the Bible? Tell me some of your favorite Bible teachers. Charles Stanley. Yes. From downtown Atlanta. That's where it used to be when I went to his church. Yeah. Baptist. The Pentecostal guy has a Baptist person he listens to. You're amazing, Randy. John Piper. Teresa reads his, his um, blogs every morning. Yeah. And when he agrees with me, she goes, you're smart. You agree with John Piper. And I said, John Piper agrees with me. There's my presupposition that I'm smarter than John Piper. Did you have one? Well, early on, I, John MacArthur, I read everything he wrote. Then I went to R.C. Sproul, D.A. Carson. These guys have all deeply influenced my beliefs. And um, so I remember doing a paper on spiritual gifts once in Bible college where I thought MacArthur did a terrible job on teaching cessationism. And so I took him to task, and I had to present the paper to the class. And I said, MacArthur, and I quoted the commentary, you know, says this in this chapter, says this in that chapter, he contradicts himself. And students got mad at me for saying John MacArthur was wrong. I was like, whoa, I was surprised. I like John MacArthur, but I was surprised how much they, they held him up as, well, if he says it, it must be true. So we have people we respect that we don't like to disagree with. That influences our Bible interpretation. So, last one, do you ever challenge your present beliefs to make sure they're biblically sound? Please do that all the time. Do it all the time. Come down, what is the core of Christianity? The, the, the Trinity, the Bible is the word of God. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ who died on the cross, was buried and rose again, and he's coming again. Um, there's not a lot that belongs in that core that you'll die for. The rest of it's important. But be open to the fact that you might have some nuances wrong or be completely wrong. And that's how you grow. All right, so with that, basic rules of interpretation. The first one, the first three rules of interpretation are context, context, context. That's old. People have been saying that for years. So that's one of my problems with devotionals. Again, you guys, Teresa uses devotionals. I, I don't. And it's not because I'm godly and she's not, because if you know Teresa, you know how that's not a true statement. She enjoys them. I, I, they lack context for me. And so I, I just, I'd rather not, I'd rather spend my time reading through a chapter of the Bible than reading a devotional. Context. And, and even preaching through Romans, I'll end up taking a full year to do Romans. But if you've hopefully been watching me or listening to me, I try to relate everything back to the previous context because I have a friend who's a phenomenal, one of the best teachers I know. He'll spend three years in the book of Romans. He did. But he uses Romans as a jumping off point to teach systematic theology. And, and it's, it's, not, it's not wrong to do that. It's one method. But I struggle with it where I'm now taking the verse I just did this last week of 
of foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And I'm going to teach theology and say where the whole Bible teaches these things and ignore what Paul is doing within Romans. So for me, like, what is Paul doing with that passage as I teach the theology behind it? That's important to me, and I don't always succeed. So context of the first one. Authorial intent. When I read the Bible, I'm looking for what did Paul mean? What did Peter mean? What did Moses mean? What did Elijah mean? Or not Elijah, he didn't write anything. What did Isaiah mean? Because my, my belief on that, on that um, chart, my, my computer, I, computer goes down, the TV goes down. I had a point, and that threw me off. Yeah, I hate getting old. So, authorial intent, Paul meant something by his choice of words. And do you know who he's writing for? Not you in the 21st century. He's writing for the Galatians, the Philippians, the Colossians. And so we have to under, say, whatever I interpret Paul to mean has to be what the Colossians would have understood too, because he's writing to them. And that requires us to step into their world, which we'll look at next. But I want to jump forward for just a moment now to, to number five on page five, dual authorship. I want to do this for a moment, then we'll come back. So who wrote the Bible? Lots of people. About how many? About 40 people. And all Jews, except for Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And to our knowledge, all males. We, we can't be absolutely conclusive on that because we don't know who wrote many of the Old Testament history books. A lot of people believe Ezra did. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. One argument is that Priscilla did. But we don't know. So what we do know is the ones that have names are men. And besides Luke and Acts, they're Jews. So, but who else wrote the Bible? I heard it already. God did. So we have two authors of the Bible. Think big A, God, little a. I have to do that backwards. <laughs> little a, human. Is... Big A's meaning the same thing as little A's meaning. Or could big A mean something else that little A didn't know he was writing? Because I see two heads shaking yes. I see one going, hmm, I don't know. Any no's? No one wants to commit to no, huh? So if you think God can put a meaning in there, that the biblical author didn't intend, how do you find it? How do you turn? The Holy Spirit. Okay? And actually did not go in the, in the, the notes I edited down. I didn't have time to go into that today. Um, and how do you know you're here in the Spirit? And not your own presuppositions and pre-understanding. So interpretation mean the meaning changes or the application does? Okay, so, so I would agree with that 100%, Josie, that how it applies to me is different how it applies to you. Um, 
But, but what, just go ahead. Okay, so if I suggest it means something that Paul made out of known, it has to fit with the rest of biblical theology. I think it's a good check and balance. Um, and I, I want to look at a couple. I want us to look at Hosea 11.1. 1. So open up your Bibles, Hosea 11.1. 1. I want that come out of there. I am. I'm pushing it. Oh, there we go. Hosea 11.1. 1. I gotta put my glasses on. Let me get rid of the. All right. So, can you guys all see this up here? So Hosea 11.1. 1. Actually, what I want you to do is I want you to go to Matthew 2.15. I know I'm messing with you. It's what I do. Matthew 2.15. Okay, the story here of Jesus as a baby, Herod's trying to kill the babies, so an angel tells Joseph and Mary, run to Egypt. Take the baby there. Then later you hear that Herod dies. So the angel says, go back now. And so we get Matthew 2.15. And he remained there, Joseph and his family remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So if you look at your footnotes or your marginal notes, where does that come from? comes from Hosea 11.1. 1. Now let's go to Hosea. So when you read this, you think, oh, there's a prophecy. There's a prophecy where God predicted the baby Jesus would go to Egypt, and then God would bring him back. So let's go to Hosea 11.1 now. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So what's it talking about here? What's, what's Hosea's context? Hello? The Exodus. The context is the Exodus. When Israel was a child, so, so turning Israel into the child of God as a nation, and I called him out of Egypt. Then look what he says about his child. The more they were called, so now, now because God called Israel out by Moses, and then he sent more and more prophets to his children. The more they, because the prophets the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offering to idols. Yet I, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with a cord of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. So this is a prediction that... that Egypt's not going to now take him captive. Assyria is. So northern Israel, who he's talking about, was taken captive by Assyria in 721 B.C. So Hosea is talking about a historical event of the Exodus with Moses, then sending this rebellious son of his into captivity in Assyria. But Matthew takes it to refer to Jesus. So 
when we talk about authorial intent, when you're going to read Hosea, you teach the history of Israel and the character of God, how he loves his people, and, but yet he will discipline his people. If you get to Matthew, Matthew sees a whole other meaning. So do you think Hosea knew he was prophesying about Jesus? I, I don't know that we can know that. I don't, I don't think we can know that. Um, but Matthew clearly sees it. So why does Matthew get permission to do this? Say it. The Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, Holy Spirit inspiring him. But is it simply that, that Matthew now gets a revelation of meaning that Hosea didn't mean, but only Matthew knows it, so he's sharing it? There's, a, there's, other, there's other answers. Um, let, let me look at one more. Let's do, the, let's do the next one in Matthew, or the previous one. Well, let's just do it. Matthew one twenty three. And the virgin shall bear a child. Okay? And quotes Isaiah 7.14. But you go to Isaiah 7.14, and the word in Hebrew is not virgin. It's Alma, young woman. And it appears that in chapter 8, the prophecy was fulfilled. The king's, not the king, Isaiah's wife had a baby. The young woman will have the baby. But Matthew takes it as reference to a virgin because the Greek translation uses the word virgin for young woman and quotes it as predicting Jesus' birth. So it appears Matthew sees more in Isaiah 7.14 than Isaiah wrote. It appears. So here's one solution. So first of all, if you look up the top of that, um, up there in the paragraph above under um, principle two, I kind of jumped ahead. This concept is called sensus plenor, which is it's his Latin for fuller sense. That sometimes Old, New Testament authors saw a fuller sense in the Old Testament than the Old Testament authors intended. And I don't have a problem with it, but I would say this about what Matthew's doing. Matthew in Matthew 1 through 4 quotes the Old Testament four or five times. And you go back and check the Old Testament context, you go, I don't see what Matthew sees. But what you have here is you have Matthew, because Israel is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Israel disobeyed. Jesus obeyed. So you have Jesus now living the same life Israel lived, but Jesus is the obedient son, where Israel was a disobedient son. So, so they go through the Red Sea. Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. They go through into the wilderness for how long? Forty years of the devil tempting them and them failing. Jesus goes into the wilderness for? Forty days being tempted by the devil, and he obeys. Okay? And you can do these parallels all along. So some scholars believe Matthew is, is saying, no, there's an analogy going on here. So anal analogous, these Old Testament passages about Israel are analogous to the life of Christ. So, so they're intended to be fulfillments. Because he doesn't say this is analogous. He says this fulfills that. So he sees them as prophetic, that God put the prophetic message in those Old Testament texts that the writers didn't know. But Jesus coming lived the same life as Israel, but was obedient. 
So it was prophetic in that he fulfilled those things. Even though Hosea 11.1 isn't prophesying anything, he's telling history. But Matthew sees it as a prophetic. Follow me? So I do believe there's things in the Bible. Here's my principle of top of the page. God intended to say exactly what the human author said. Therefore, our starting point is the intended meaning of the human author, which is ascertained by the grammatical, historical, cultural method of interpretation, which we'll look at next. Principle two, some Old Testament texts may take on more meaning than the human author intended because of the progress or fulfillment of salvation history. So because salvation history's idea of Adam and Eve fell, Jesus returns, sets up the kingdom of God. That's the beginning of the history is the fall. The end of the history is Jesus' return. There's this development of the salvation story that later events reflect earlier events. So we can put meaning on the later events, pull it from the earlier events, even though the authors of those earlier events were unaware of it. Because God is the author of the whole thing. I struggle with... Anytime someone says, well, the Spirit told me this passage means this, and it has no root whatsoever in, in, in the history of the, the, the book itself. I struggle with that. Um, I'm not going to deny God can do as God pleases. I just struggle if you're telling me to do something based on it. So let's go back now. The grammatical, historical, cultural method of interpretation. This, is, um, this comes out of the Reformation. Let me tell you why it comes out of the Reformation. In medieval Catholicism, who is the authority to interpret the Bible? The church, the Catholic church is. So when the Protestants start saying, no, 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 Scripture alone is our authority, not the church. The church is not over Scripture. Scripture is over the church. So, and what's called the perspicuity of Scripture, and the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers is we all have the Spirit of God, and we all can read the Bible for ourselves. And the perspicuity of Scripture is the idea that the Scripture is sufficiently clear for anyone to understand them that has a brain. doesn't mean simple, but sufficiently clear. The Catholic Church says, if you guys do this, you're going to have all number of interpretations out there. And your little branch of Christianity called Lutheranism and Reformed are going to turn into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And guess what's happened? It's thousands and thousands and thousands. So their fears came true. But because they say, you know, we can interpret the Bible, but there's obviously common sense rules. And so out of the Reformation comes, and not that people didn't practice this before, they did, but the Reformation really made these front and center. And that is the grammatical, historical, cultural method of interpretation. When you read your Bible, you look at the grammar of a sentence. You look at the history behind it and the culture that it comes from. And you analyze those to say, what does this mean in light of those three things? So let me give you some examples, and you can decide whether you agree with it. So John 5.13. Someone read that in the notes. Okay. Every time I do that, I forget there's people watching online. These things I have written to you. That's okay. They, they couldn't hear you. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So, the, so guys, you know, grammar is important, right? If I say to you something along the lines, I have written to believe in the name of Jesus 
and, and because you have eternal life. You know, what the heck are you talking about? See, the word order is important in English. It means something. Word order. People say word order doesn't matter in Greek. It does matter. It's just they can really mix it up. It still matters. So I ask you this question based on that verse. How do you know you have eternal life according to this verse? I know I'm setting you up. because so, no, so I'm not answering that. He's going to tell me I'm wrong. So I believe in the Son of God. You know you have eternal life because you believe in the Son of God. Okay, so, so grammatically speaking, I want you to look down at the bottom of page four. This is the grammar of the sentence. These things I have written to you so that you may know you have eternal life. The phrase, to you who believe in the Son of God, is simply telling you who you is. It's not telling you how you know. I'm writing to you, Tina, who work at Tall Family Solutions because I'm going to come down and buy something. I'm writing to you because I'm going to come down and buy something. When I say Tall Family Solutions, I'm simply identifying who you are. So this is not saying, how do you know you have eternal life if you believe in Jesus? These things I have written to you so that you may know you have eternal life. What are these things? If you go back to the previous two verses, you know what it says? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. That begs the question in John context. How do you know you have the Son? Well, the whole book of 1 John, especially chapters 2 and 3, have been arguing this. Do you love your brother? And are you living righteous? That proves the Son is in you. If you don't love your brother, what does 1 John say? You're a liar. The truth's not in you. So I suggest to you, you know you have the Son of God because the context of 1 John says, says, you're alive in Christ because of love and righteousness. And if there's no love for your brother and there's no righteousness in your activity, then you don't know Jesus. End of story, according to 1 John. So the grammar brings you here. But if you just take it out of context, oh, if you believe in the Son of God. So you guys can argue later with me on that one. I'm going to go on to, to historical. Look at example Isaiah 6.1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. It's on page 5. I saw the Lord. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I have seen Yahweh. Why is Isaiah freaked out by seeing Yahweh in light of King Uzziah's death? Do you know how King Uzziah died? This is the history behind it. Do you know how King Uzziah died? No. Okay. He died from leprosy. And do you know how he got leprosy? Mm -mm. He went into the temple and made a sacrifice. And what's wrong with a king in the line of David going to the temple and making a sacrifice? He doesn't belong. Only people in the line of Aaron go and make sacrifices, or Levi. So Uzziah got impatient when he made a sacrifice, and God said, you don't belong in here. The priest tried to stop him, and he ignored them. He made the sacrifice, and God struck him with leprosy, and he died from it. 
So in the year that Uzziah, who everybody knows, messed up and got leprosy because he went into the presence of God, the year he died, Isaiah is taken in, not to the earthly temple, but to the actual presence of God. And if Uzziah goes into the earthly temple and died, I'm going into the heavenly temple, what's going to happen to me? I am dead. Woe is me, because I am a sinner and a man with unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. What does God do? The angel takes the tongs and grabs some coal and comes over and touches his lips. If he's a man of unclean lips, I just purified your lips. And, and then God says, who will go for me? And what does Isaiah say? So you, you, you know, you TV, 70 TV people like Horshack. Ooh, 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 send me, send me. Watch, welcome back, Cotter. It's, it's 745, thank you. Um, so, so, so he goes from, I'm going to die, to, I'm your man. This is the story of redemption. It's a beautiful story. But so the history tells you why he's freaked out. You have to know the history behind the passage. Culture. Culture of a passage. There's lots of ways to illustrate this, but I want to first talk about, I, I say in here, the woman caught in adultery, but I don't want to do that one. I want to do the woman at the well. So when does Jesus arrive at the well in John 4? You got to remember, midday. And the, 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 there's um, one woman alone drawing water. The culture of the day, people came in the morning or the evening to draw water when it was cool, not midday. She's all alone. Well, what's going on here? Yeah, she's an outsider. So much so, she's had five husbands, and the one she's with is not her husband. Then when, when she goes back to her village to tell the people, who does she tell? The men. She doesn't tell the women. It says she tells the men, because the women don't like her, because she's been sleeping with her husbands. This is not a, a nice, good woman. So you have to know the culture of the day of how people came to wells. To understand the significance, Jesus is talking to a woman and one of ill repute at that. So it's, it's the beauty of our Savior. You know? so, so grammar, history, and culture, and you, you learn these things by by thinking well and reading well. It's not easy. This is where study Bible helps. Um, study Bibles are always good. Study Bible is a commentary and a Bible in one. Let me do number four, then we're done. Don't yawn. That would suggest you're not having fun. It's okay. Last Sunday, there's this gentleman in church. I won't say his name. I'll give you his initials, though. <laughs> Falls asleep every week. Within five minutes of my message, he's gone. He's a good man, works hard, obviously, doesn't sleep well. The worship keeps him alive. My sermons put him down. So if you're tired, it's okay. Number four is distanciation in culture. Distanciation, the word distance. I'm going to read it to you. Distance, distanciation means that we must distance ourselves and our culture from the text. It's very difficult to do. Our culture is an intricate part of our thinking. There is much of our Christianity that is not actually biblical, but rather American. When we read a text, we can easily allow ourselves to read it in all of our 21st century influence and presuppositions and back and pre-understanding. 
As was stated above, we must ask, what did it mean to the writer and his audience? After we determine this, then we can apply it to our times. So let me give an example. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. So who or what is the gates of hell? Okay, Christina just said the devil. Have you guys heard that interpretation? The, the, I will build my church and the devil will not overpower it. I've heard whole sermons on it. I, I, I saw a play in Reno. It's called um, Heaven's Gates and Hell Something. What was it called? Was that what it was called? Something like that. It was, it was a, a, a play where it was different scenarios where like there was these two construction workers working on, working on um, a high rise. And they fall off and they die. And the next scene then is, is they're standing before the angel with the book of life open. And the one man's name is written in there. And when his name is said, Jesus comes from behind a curtain and welcomes him into the kingdom. The other man's name is not mentioned. So demons come out of another curtain and drag him off to hell. And so here's the imagery that the gates of hell is Satan's domain. And Jesus is building his church. And Satan and the gates of hell will never come against the church. So one small problem. There's nothing in the Bible that says Satan runs hell. Nothing. That comes from our popular culture. That actually comes from early um, um, Dante's Inferno and his, his, his um, um, what was the whole play called? His three parts to it. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tour where the angel takes you through hell, purgatory, and heaven. The Divine Comedy, is it called? Yeah, divine Comedy. And so the, the part on hell is Satan and his minions run hell in his play. Then we get to our world, and maybe you guys won't remember this, but far side cartoons. Because who ran hell in far side cartoons? The devil did, absolutely. And he's got a pitchfork, he's got a little tail with an arrow and horns. Um, so our popular cartoons made devil. But what is hell created for? It's created for the devil and his angels to suffer there day and night forever and ever. It's, it's not the place he rules. Where is Satan ruling today? On earth. He's the prince of the power of the air. So we have this belief that the gates of hell refer to Satan, his kingdom. But if you look at the passages there, the gates of hell is an Old Testament expression for death. That's all it is. So the church will never die. That's what Jesus is saying. And so therefore, in light of that, Satan can't destroy it. But it's not talking about Satan. Our culture, we've been so ingrained with Jesus runs hell. Excuse me. Actually, I'm going to argue that Jesus runs heaven, Satan runs hell. So in that play where the demons dragged him off to hell, who actually sends someone to hell? God does. God created hell for the devil and his angels. And we see the lake of fire that the devil's thrown in there. The false prophet is thrown in there. And the Antichrist is thrown in there. That's two human beings. And it says they are tormented day and night forever and ever. And then all who don't believe in Jesus are thrown in there. So we draw the conclusion they too are torment, tormented day and night forever and ever. That's a whole other class.
Go ahead, Josie. Jesus, so, so, yes, he took him away from Satan. Because, so, so I would say to that, that death in Hades, that Hades, Hades is the Hebrew word Sheol, which simply is the place of the dead. In other words, the death in Hades is a term for death. Satan has power because of death, it's too late. Jesus takes that away, now he controls it. But does it mean Jesus, that Satan runs what we call hell? So what we call hell is, is um, in fact, Hades in the Old Testament, the Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word. Hades is the, Eng- the Greek word. Hell is the English word. We have this whole theology of hell that the word Hades in Greek and Sheol in Hebrew doesn't support. And so we have to think, okay, what does Sheol and Hades mean, not what does the English concept of hell mean? Because um, even in Sheol, believers went there. David went to Sheol. I think Abraham's bosom is Sheol. And Jesus empties it. So I think, I think we read too much into the fact that he has keys. It means he, he runs it. It's time to... How does Satan run earth while he's being tormented in hell? No, he's, he's not there yet. Uh, at, at Revelation 20, he's thrown into hell after Jesus returns. So, but now, it says Satan was thrown down to earth and he has dominion over the earth because Adam and Eve gave it to him. So the abyss where the demons are held captive, but it's not Satan who runs that. God is the one who locks that door. So why would they? Because it's um, yes. So 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 she's asking me about the abyss, when when the 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 legion who was in the people and God Jesus sent them into the pigs, because I said don't don't send us to prison, don't send us to the abyss. It's not time yet. So there's a place where demons are held captive, evidently, according to 2 Peter 2 and Jude, that, that it's not run by Satan. It's a place God put them. Because they did not keep their proper abode, whatever the heck that means. Um, right, Gen- if Genesis 6 means angels married women, which really freaks me out. So... <laughs> Yeah, um, and so that's the demonic realm starts. Um, anyways, we're way off. We're way off. So you've got to distance yourself. Don't presume your understanding of cultural world of the Bible is, is correct. Distance yourself. Do some research. And a simple, a simple good study Bible will tell you the gates of hell is not Satan's kingdom. It's death. All right. We're out of time. So I'm going to take off the whole month of May, go on a road trip. Then when I come back in June, is summertime a time to have another class? Will you come or will you say, eh, wait till September? How many will come in the summer? Okay. Yeah, but, but if it's a six-week class, it takes you well into July. I appreciate your answer there. Depends. Yes. Um, Maybe on the road. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I've enjoyed this, and I want to keep doing it. A lot of people will be there, too, because Herbert. Correct, correct. Because my real thought is I want to tackle um, the passages that talk about the second coming of Christ. 
So it'd be more of a textual study of the second coming of Christ than a, than a theological study about end times. So what, what do these passages actually say? As opposed to, let's talk about Bible prophecy being fulfilled because that's not my expertise. Um, so I'll get more information about that as we get before I leave. Um, but thank you guys very much. This has been fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I, and I, I hope and trust, Lord, that, that when we, we see the Bible on our desk or we pick up our phone or iPad, wherever we have our Bible, Lord, we will, we will be inspired, even compelled to open it up Trust it as your revelation to us, inspired by you, to guide us into righteousness and good works, which Second Timothy tells us is the purpose. Lord, um, work it deep in our heart, a desire to be like you, have that righteousness, and then to live a life of loving each other, loving our neighbor, the good works you've called us to do, Lord. We all want it. We have the flesh that fights us on it. But um, just motivate us, Father, to, to want to read our word, to pursue you. Thank you for giving it to us. And thank you for this group. And I love you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray.